0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon we have two scripture readings, both from the Gospel according to John. First of all, we'll read the first 18 verses of this book, so John 1, verses 1 to 18... And then we'll go over to John 5, where we'll read verses 31 to 47. We'll also read a couple of articles from the Belgic Confession. But first of all, John chapter 1, at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now we go to the fifth chapter of John, at verse 31. And here, our Lord Jesus is addressing the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, Verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Let's also turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 7 and Article 19. Article 7, the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. We believe that this Holy Scripture fully contains the will of God, and that all that man must believe in order to be saved is sufficiently taught therein. The whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in it at length. It is therefore unlawful for anyone even for an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in Holy Scripture. Yes, even if it be an angel from heaven, as the Apostle Paul says, Galatians 1, verse 8. Since it is forbidden to add or to take away anything from the Word of God, Deuteronomy twelve thirty it is evident that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. We may not consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been of equal value with the divine Scriptures nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude or antiquity or succession of times and persons or councils, decrees, or statutes as of equal value with the truth of God, since the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars and lighter than a breath. Psalm 62, verse 9. We therefore reject with all our heart whatever does not agree with this infallible rule, as the apostles have taught us. Test the spirits to see whether they are of God. 1 John 4, verse 1. Likewise, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. 2 John 1, verse 10. And then also Article 19. Two natures in the one person of Christ. We believe that by this conception... The person of the Son of God is inseparably united and joined with the human nature, so that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single person. Each nature retains its own distinct properties. His divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life. Hebrews 7, verse 3, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties. It has beginning of days and remains created. It is finite and retains all the properties of a true body. Even though by His resurrection He has given immortality to His human nature, He has not changed its reality. Since our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of His body. However, These two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not even separated by his death. Therefore, what he, when dying, committed into the hands of his father was a real human spirit that departed from his body. Meanwhile, his divinity always remained united with his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave. And the divine nature always remained in him, just as it was in him when he was a little child, even though it did not manifest itself as such for a little while. For this reason, we profess him to be true God and true man, true God in order to conquer death by his power, and true man, that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. This afternoon we're considering the truth of God's word as it's been summarized in Lord's Day 6 of the Catechism. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 From where do you know this? from the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only Son. a Congregation of the Lord Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I watched a video of a sermon from a certain fairly well-known, He's is well-known by now, pastor in Seattle, Mark Driscoll was upset because he says he was driving along in his Jeep and listening to a Christian radio station. There was an ad from a local church inviting people to come and listen to a Jewish rabbi explain the Old Testament. I should say that this Jewish rabbi was just kosher Jewish. He wasn't a Messianic Jew. He was just plain Jewish. He was Reform, Orthodox, whatever he was. And a local Christian church was inviting people in the Seattle area to come and listen to this rabbi give insight to the Old Testament. Driscoll says that when he heard that, he gripped his steering wheel so hard that the airbag just about deployed. The people at this church obviously didn't get what or who the Old Testament is all about. The Jewish rabbi wouldn't have understood what Jesus is all about. If he acknowledged the existence of Jesus at all, this Jewish rabbi would have likely said that he was a revolutionary rabbi, a mere man. But God and man? Forget it. And yet this Jewish rabbi was going to teach Christians. And by the end of this sermon, I hope you'll understand, if you don't already, I hope you'll understand why Mark Driscoll got upset about this ad. There's confusion out there about the nature of the Bible and about the natures of Christ. This afternoon, with the help of the Gospel of John, and also with the help of the summary of Scripture and in the Catechism and in the Confession, we're going to consider the Word and the Word, God's revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll consider two points. First of all, the nature of the Word inscripturated, or the nature of the Word written. And then second, the natures of the Word incarnated, the Word in the flesh. The goal of Lord's Day 6 is to lead us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. The 18th question and answer tells us about the mediator in whom we'll find the way to peace with God, the way to find reconciliation. And then question and answer 19 asks us from where we can know the identity of this mediator. The answer is found in the gospel, the gospel that's revealed in God's word. And this provides us the opportunity to reflect on the nature of God's written or inscripturated word. Where did the Bible come from? What kind of a book is it, exactly? Well, different people have given different answers. There are those also today who say that the Bible is only a witness to the faith of the Jews that it is also a witness to the faith of the first people who called themselves Christians. It only tells us what the Jews believed. It tells us what the Christians believed. It's not a a revelation from God, they say, but a collection of human documents telling us what certain human beings believed at a certain point in history others will expand on that somewhat, and they will say that it shows the evolution of religious beliefs. People went from a simple monotheistic faith, a belief just in one God, like Abraham, to a much more evolved form of faith, involving all kinds of rituals and ceremonies. Think Moses. Now, the people who believe these things are known as theological liberals. Now, we sometimes use the word liberal in a kind of a loose way, pejorative way. We say, that church is so liberal. He's so liberal. But in its proper sense, liberals are simply those who regard the Bible as essentially a human document. And people who look at the Bible that way don't have a problem with being called liberals either. They will say, I am a liberal when it comes to the Bible. And so we have the theological liberals who have certain ideas about the nature of the Bible, and there are also the followers of people like Karl Barth. Karl Barth, that's not to be confused with the socialist or the communist, Karl Marx. Karl Barth was a Swiss theologian in the last century. He claimed to be orthodox, although generally he's called neo-orthodox today. He claimed to be Orthodox, however, he claimed to be Reformed, and today you'll find his name sprinkled with approval in all kinds of popular Christian books. But Karl Barth was not Orthodox on the nature of Scripture. He taught that the Bible is not objectively, of itself, the Word of God. Karl Barth said that the Bible becomes the Word of God as we accept it and as it impacts our lives. The problem with all these positions, whether the theological liberals or the Barthians, the problem is that they don't take what the Bible says about itself seriously. The worldview of many people, also people who call themselves Christians, just doesn't allow for a supernatural revelation from God. If there is a God, he has not revealed himself publicly and objectively for all mankind. In that kind of a worldview, way of looking at the world, religion is essentially a purely subjective thing. And then so is revelation. But what does the Bible say? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. The entire Bible has its origin in God Himself. God has breathed it out. In other words, it is the inspired Word of God. Peter says the exact same thing in 2 Peter 1.21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now it should be pointed out that both 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1 are speaking directly about the Old Testament. However, there are a number of places where what is said about the Old Testament is also applied to the New Testament. For for instance, at the end of 2 Peter, Peter equates Paul's letters to the Old Testament Scriptures. When he says, speaking about Paul's letters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, and here it comes, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. When he speaks about other scriptures here, he uses the same words he used to speak about the Old Testament in chapter 1. Paul's letters are scripture, just like the Old Testament is scripture, and then we can extend that to all the New Testament writings. So the Bible, in all of its 66 books, is inspired by God. Its reliability follows from that. We speak, when we talk about the reliability of the Bible, we speak about the infallibility and the inerrancy of God's Word. Jesus said in John 10.35 that the Scripture cannot be broken. The Bible is infallible. And that means that the Bible never fails. It never fails in its judgments and statements. Everything that is taught in the Bible is solid. It's reliable. It is of absolute authority. It cannot be contravened. cannot be contradicted. It cannot be undermined. Scripture is unfailing. It is incapable of being proven false, erroneous, or mistaken. Though heaven and earth should pass away, Jesus said, its words of truth will stand forever. It cannot change or be destroyed. The scriptures are also inerrant. That means they possess the quality of being free from error. They are exempt from the possibility of mistakes, incapable of error. In all the teachings of Holy Scripture, we find perfect expression of the truth of God. So, Scripture is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant. And to all those things, we can also add what we confess in Article 7 of the Belgic Confession. Holy Scripture is also sufficient. It fully contains the will of God, and all that we need to know to be saved is right there in our Bibles. As the Spirit teaches us in 2 Timothy 3, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And because it is a perfectly sufficient revelation from God, nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken away from it. So scripture is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient. Now, more could be said. Let's now move on to consider the content of scripture. The purpose of scripture, the aim. What, What is the Bible all about? Better yet, who is the Bible all about? It's best to let Jesus answer that question. And he does that in the fifth chapter of John. He speaks about the Jewish leaders who diligently study the scriptures. In other words, they know their Old Testament inside out and backwards. Probably a lot like the Jewish rabbi in Seattle. And they think that in so doing, they possess eternal life. Then Jesus adds these crucially important words. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And he says in verse 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. This morning I mentioned the value of scripture memorization. Now, if you want to put that into practice, you're looking for some verses to memorize this week, let me recommend memorizing these ones, verses 39 and 46 of John 5. These verses are the key, loved ones. They're the key to understanding, to unlocking everything in the Old Testament and everything in the New Testament. The entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, what's it about? It's about Jesus Christ. It's all centered on him. It all points to him in some way, shape, or form. That's why we sang Psalm 22 before the sermon. That psalm speaks about the suffering of Jesus. Jesus himself takes it on his lips while he's on the cross. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. We're going to sing Psalm 110 after the sermon. That psalm speaks about the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. It's one of the most, if not the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Probably the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted at least 25 times. And in every instance, it's applied to Jesus Christ. The Psalms are about him. Everything points to him. And the Catechism captures that in question and answer 19 when it summarizes the way in which the gospel is found everywhere in the Bible. God himself first revealed it in Genesis 3. There we find what we call the the mother promise. There in Genesis 3 verse 15. Where God promised to bruise the head of the serpent call the mother promise, because this is the promise from which all other promises for our salvation in the Bible are derived. The promise of the gospel was proclaimed by and through the patriarchs, through Abraham, through Isaac, and Jacob, and, and others too. It was preached by the prophets, by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and we can go through the whole list. The gospel was also revealed in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the Mosaic Law. And then finally, it came to fulfillment with the incarnation of the Son of God. The entire Bible speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Let me mention a couple of ways in which this this should, this, this must impact our lives. First of all, it has to impact the ministry of the church from Sunday to Sunday. I've heard sermons, that's sad to say, but I've heard sermons where the name of Jesus Christ wasn't even mentioned, or if it was mentioned, it was just casually in passing. I've heard sermons on the radio and in person, and maybe you have too, sermons that that could have been preached in a Jewish synagogue. And no one there would have battered an eye. There was nothing of Jesus Christ. Just ethics. Do this and don't do that. Five easy principles to this or to that. Brothers and sisters, please, if you ever hear a sermon from your pastors and we do not preach Christ, please say something to us. We aim to preach Christ and Him crucified. But we're mere men. And sometimes we falter, and sometimes we, too, need a reminder about what's of first importance. When I'm working on my sermons, looking forward to Sunday, I'm imagining in my mind that you're coming to church with the words of the Greeks, the Greeks in John 12, that you have those words on your heart Sir, we would like to see Jesus. I want to proclaim him, and I know that Pastor Vischer does as well. Please help us keep on track with that. So that's the first way in which this should impact our lives. Here's the second. Let this impact your Bible study, especially the Bible study that you do as groups group Bible study. I know this is kind of an awkward time because the study season is over pretty much. If I look in the liturgy sheet, it appears that there's only one Bible study still going on tonight. But for the rest of you, I imagine that you're thinking ahead to, to next year, planning ahead. Loved ones, watch out for material that does not point you to Christ. Watch out for Bible study material that misses the point of Scripture. And it, again, it's sad to say, but a lot of the stuff that's out there does miss the point. There's nothing or very little about Jesus Christ and how different Bible passages point us to him, how different passages witness to him. And this is especially the case with Old Testament material. But we're reformed. And as Reformed people, we have a rich heritage of reading the entire Bible with an eye to Jesus Christ and to his his redemptive work. But unfortunately, there are not a lot of people in our North American context that share that heritage. And so I urge you to use discernment in selecting Bible study material. Look for study guides that point you to Christ. Look for study guides that don't take the gospel for granted, don't assume it. But have the gospel as totally central. That have Christ as central. Don't settle for anything less. And when, you, and when you're doing that Bible study with one another, let me also encourage you to, to challenge one another on this point. How does this passage that we're studying, how does this point us to Christ? How does this passage point us to the gospel? Now, as we look at the revelation of Christ in Scripture, there are two things that become apparent about him. Those two things are expressed in question and answer 16 and 17. His two natures. He is God and he is man. First of all, the Bible reveals that he has a divine nature. That simply means that Jesus Christ is God, one person of the Holy Trinity. John 1, verse 1 is the classic text, referring to Jesus as the Word, the Logos in in Greek. We've been talking about the Word as in the Word of God, the, the Bible. But the Gospel according to John also refers to Jesus as being the Word, the Logos, And John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As far as his divine nature goes, he has always been the Son of God. He has always had the divine nature. He has always been God, and he will always be God. And there have always been those who deny the divinity of Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that God created Jesus billions of years ago as the archangel Michael. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is not God equal to the Father, but merely a divine being of some sort, a God, but not God with a capital G. The Mormons say that the Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother produced Jesus, gave birth to Jesus as their first and greatest spirit child. The Mormons say that he is Lucifer's spirit brother, who became, again, a God, but whose deity is no different than that of many people. In the Mormon theology, people can become gods. So there's the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, there are also some Pentecostals. They're called oneness Pentecostals who say that there is no Trinity, but that Jesus appears in the roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It used to be that these heresies were on the fringe of North American Christianity. Not anymore. You can go to a local Christian bookstore. and You can find books. I found them books by a popular preacher named Creflo Dollar. He maintains that Jesus did not come as God. He came only as man. Dangerous heresies about Jesus' divine nature, they're becoming mainstream. You can hear them on the radio. You can watch them on TV. You can find them in Christian bookstores. But now we could ask, Why does it matter that Jesus was divine? Do we have to make a big deal about this? Aren't you being nitpicky? Well, the Catechism rightly says that he had to be true God so that he could bear the burden of God's wrath. Without a divine nature, he could not bear the punishment we deserve. He could not die and then rise again victorious. He could never obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. If he was a mere man, he would have been totally defeated. He never would have been able to rise from the dead. And that's why the Athanasian Creed, which we confessed last Sunday, the Athanasian Creed says that you cannot be saved if you deny that Christ has a divine nature. This is a salvation issue. If you deny that Jesus is God, if you say that he is not a person of the Trinity, you cannot be saved. It's that serious. And so the Bible reveals that he has a divine nature. The Bible also reveals a human nature of Christ. That simply means that Christ is truly human, that he is one of us. Verse 14 of John 1 says it plainly. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As far as his human nature goes, he became a man at his incarnation. He has not always had a human nature, but today he does, and he always will. And this human nature, as we confess in the Athanasian Creed, is a true human nature. That means, as the Creed puts it, that he is exactly like us, having a human soul and human flesh. Yes, he is sinless, and yes, today he has a glorified body, but in every other respect, he was and is a human being exactly as we are. When he walked on this earth, he did everything that normal human beings do, except sin. Everything. Absolutely everything. You name it, he did it. And like there have been people for centuries who deny the divinity of Jesus, there are also those who go the other direction, err in the opposite, denying his humanity. And here, we don't even have to look very far. Because sometimes without even knowing what we're doing, We're in that number ourselves. For example, there's a way in a manger. A popular Christmas carol which speaks about Jesus as a baby saying, no crying he makes. That's just wrong. That's totally wrong. If we're to believe that romantic idea then it's as if Jesus was not truly a human child. He was super baby. Who would never cry to let his mother know that he was hungry. That he would never cry to let his mother know that he was wet and needed to have his diaper changed. That he never cried to let his mother know that his tummy was sore and he had colic. That's just, that's wrong. Jesus was a true human baby who did all those things, who cried like any normal human baby does. And then there are those who are so intent on preserving Christ's divinity that they won't allow for the possibility that Jesus was really tempted by Satan in the wilderness. As if these were just fake temptations. As if Jesus was not tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin, as it says in Hebrews 4.15. Loved ones, those were real temptations that he experienced. And again, loved ones, you may think that this is just being picky, but there's, there's a lot at stake here. Let me tell you why. Jesus was truly human. And this is encouraging for us. This is something you don't want to let go of easily. He was truly tempted to sin, and he emerged victorious. He was poor. People attacked him by spreading vicious rumors. They took his real, physical, human body, and they abused it. People mocked him. They made fun of him. They spit on him. They pulled out his beard. He experienced loneliness, deep sorrow, exhaustion, weeping. The friends of our Lord Jesus turned their backs on him and betrayed him at his lowest point. His family thought he was deranged. When he was on the cross, he bled. Real red blood. He bled and he died. His heart stopped beating. And for those who are ill, those who are sick, those who are abused, those who are burned out, people who are tired, bedridden, flat, broke, tempted, weary, hated, lonely, dying, we can be encouraged by the humanity of Jesus. If we didn't know that he was human, it would be more difficult for us to go to him in our time of need, looking for more grace. His humanity and what he experienced as a real human being living on this earth makes him an understanding and sympathetic friend. Now, knowing all that, would you want to let go of his humanity? Would you want to undermine it or dismiss it in any way, even if it's just by like cavalierly singing a, a Christmas carol? True man. The Catechism and the Belgic Confession take us further into appreciation for his humanity. Question answer 16 says that our mediator must be a true man so that he can pay for sin. The same human nature which has sinned has to pay for sin. The Belgic Confession similarly says that he was true man, that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. What does that mean? Well, it means that if he only had a divine nature, he would not have died. He could not have died. You cannot kill God. But as a man, Jesus was killed. Jesus died. He gave up his life. He died for us. He also rose for us. And his resurrection also involved his real human nature. The Belgic Confession rightly says that our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body. Scripture teaches that in passages like first Corinthians fifteen, twenty to twenty two. Paul says there, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's the end of the quote. Notice how the human nature of Christ fits in there. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Through someone exactly like you and me. The risen Lord Jesus, presently sitting at God's right hand. Brothers and sisters, the entire word reveals to us the divine human word. Jesus himself, true God, and true man. He is the mediator and deliverer, the one whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. He is the only one we need. And we need him only as he's revealed in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word. We praise you for its testimony to the gospel and its witness to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help us to hear and see Jesus as we read and study your word and as it's preached to us every Sunday. We thank you also for the two natures of our Savior. We're grateful that he could bear your wrath with his divine nature. We're grateful that he could die for our sins with his human nature and rise again. Father, we're encouraged by the fact that he was tempted in every respect like we are, yet without sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking on our human flesh. Thank you for experiencing what we go through in our lives. Thank you for being someone to whom we can go, that we, where we can find grace to help in our time of need. Help us with your spirit to live with faith in you each day, relying on your word alone. We pray in your name. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.